everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, I'm going to be diving into the very sinister and disturbing life of probably America's most infamous serial killer, and that is Ted Bundy. Before I get into today's episode, though, a couple things I just wanted to mention. First of all, thanks to everybody who purchased a limited edition Lights Out Skelly plush. Really appreciate you guys. We were able to meet the campaign goals. Actually, we surpassed it. So everybody that purchased one is obviously going to get one. It's just going to take a little bit of time for those going to production. It is a custom item, so please be patient. I promise it will be worth the wait. Also, I know in my last episode, I mentioned I'd be back in my normal studio, which I love so much, but duty as a dad calls and I'm still at home in the basement, probably for a couple more weeks, and then hopefully I'll be back in my normal home for good. I'm also nearing the end of my search for a new on-camera producer, which I'm very excited about. So more on that, hopefully here in a month or two, I'll be able to make a formal announcement on that. And lastly, today's episode is brought to you by Stamps.com, care of every plate and Raycon. One great way you can support the show other than buying merch at MelHerMerch.com is just simply by subscribing on YouTube and then going to Spotify. Make sure you're following the show there and then going to Apple Podcasts and making sure you're subscribed there. I know it's three different platforms. You probably only use one or two. It does just really help out the show. So the show has actually been charting very, very high on Spotify lately. So thank you to all of my Spotify listeners and viewers. I really appreciate y'all because we have been the number one show in the UK in true crime for the past week, pretty much. And then I think we've been top five in true crime in the United States, which is just absolutely dope. So thank you for the support. Thank you for everybody new who is listening to the show. I've got so much cool shit planned for the show. I mean, we're just getting started. There's so many things I've been wanting to do that time is just not allowed for. There's so many topics and stories and you guys have been submitting so many interesting things that I've just been going down so many rabbit holes, very, very dark rabbit holes at that. So thank you so much for being a lights out listener. I really appreciate you. And the show is only beginning. So let's go ahead and just jump right into today's episode. We're going to dive into the life from the very beginning of serial killer Ted Bundy. The life of Ted Bundy began on November 24th, 1946, where he was born to his mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, who gave birth to him at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. The Elizabeth Lund Home was a place where women could go if they suffered from poverty, addiction, or abuse, or any other types of issues like that. And some of the women there suffered from all three. Eleanor was there because she had no money and nowhere else to go. Her parents were still around, but her father was extremely abusive. And after she gave birth, the identity of Ted's real father became a mystery. On his birth certificate, his father was listed as Lloyd Marshall, who was born in 1916. But his mother later said that she had been seduced by a war veteran named Jack Worthington, and he impregnated her. Either way, Ted didn't have a father growing up. The rest of Eleanor's family didn't believe the stories about who the father was. Others even went as far to suspect that Eleanor's abusive father, Samuel, might have sexually assaulted her and impregnated her. So to avoid the rumors and the social stigma of being a single woman at the time, Samuel and his wife Eleanor took their grandson in as their son. 
and his name became Theodore Robert Cowell. And so Ted grew up believing that his mother was just his older sister, and he wouldn't actually find out the truth until many years later. So him and his mother lived with his grandparents in Philadelphia for the first few years of his life. In the 1940s, the nuclear family was everything. A tight-knit family unit was seen as the only way to properly raise kids. So they stayed with the grandparents for several years. Samuel was violently abusive, so Ted was constantly in defensive mode for the first few years of his life. He would even beat the family dog and kill small animals in front of Ted in 1950 when Ted was only four years old. Eleanor and Ted fled Samuel's house, and they moved in with some other relatives in Tacoma, Washington. Here, his mother changed his last name from Cowell to Nelson, and by the next year, she met a man named Johnny Bundy at an adult singles night in Tacoma's first Methodist church. Their romance moved fast, and they married within a year. So Ted's last name was changed once again, and he was officially named Ted or Theodore Bundy. His mother and his new stepfather had several more children through the years, and since Ted was much older, he spent a lot of his childhood babysitting the younger kids. John tried to be a father to Ted. He tried to get his stepson to join him on camping trips or going fishing, but Ted was very reserved and kept his distance. He had been in and out of so many different homes that he refused to make an emotional connection with anyone. And as he got older, he went to Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma, where he was known as a good student. He also served as the vice president of the Methodist Youth Fellowship at his church. Plus, he was a Boy Scout in the local troop. He was busy, active, and successful. But still, he struggled to make any social connections. He was shy and introverted. And he later said that he felt like he had hit a wall in high school. He struggled to understand social behavior. He never made any close friends, but he was good at pretending that he had a social life. When he was a teen, he would tell his parents that he was going out with friends on a Friday night. Once he left the house, he spent all of his time alone. He didn't understand why people wanted to have friends. He didn't even understand why people liked each other in the first place. The more time that Ted spent alone, the more in touch with the darker side of himself he got. As he isolated himself from everyone in his teens, evil thoughts and desires crept in. Ted called this part of himself the Entity. And it was this part of himself that became fascinated with sex and violence. While in his teens, he would search through their local library looking for true crime magazines and books on violent crime. He wasn't looking for interesting stories. He was looking for pictures that showed dead bodies and violent sexuality. He wanted to see dead women covered in blood. And he would fantasize about how they died. There was something about these images that ignited a deep desire inside of him. He would often steal these books and magazines he found, and he would keep them in a private collection so he could go back and look at them whenever he wanted to. Before Ted was even out of high school, he was a compulsive thief. Not only did he steal the crime books and magazines, but he began stealing ski equipment, and he forged lift tickets. By the time he was 17, he had become an amateur criminal. He was caught stealing and arrested twice as a juvenile but his record was later expunged. His early criminal life as a petty thief was only the beginning. In 1965, Ted Bundy graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School. He was such a successful student that he got a scholarship to the University of Puget Sound. 
By that fall, he began his college courses where he found an interest in psychology and oriental studies. After a year, he ended up transferring to Seattle's University of Washington. All the while, his obsession with finding pictures of dead women took up a lot of the spare time that he had, but he was pretty busy with classes. And when he wasn't at class, he worked at the Seattle Safeway store on Queen Anne Hill as a bagger and shelf stalker. He also found a few other odd jobs. And as part of his coursework, he also worked as a night shift volunteer at Seattle's Suicide Hotline. This was a suicide crisis center that served the greater Seattle metropolitan and suburban areas. Many people would call in if they were having suicidal thoughts. And Ted would help them talk through it. This is also where he met a former Seattle policewoman named Ann Rule. At the time, she was also starting her crime writing career. And she would one day write a biography of Ted Bundy and his crimes called The Stranger Beside Me. Between Ted's work, volunteering classes, and obsession with sexual violence, he started dating a woman named Diane Edwards, also known by her alias, Stephanie Brooks. He had met her through the University of Washington in 1967. Ted thought she was beautiful, had a great car, and great parents. She was his first girlfriend he ever had, and he felt like she was way out of his league. He still struggled with socializing, so he spent a lot of time trying to impress her. And they would go on long car rides, making out and telling each other how much they loved one another. But the relationship wouldn't last long. After she graduated in 1968, she returned to her family home in Washington. She wanted Ted to go to law school, but he had failed to get in. The relationship dwindled and she wrote back to him less and less from California. And finally, she broke up with Ted and claimed that he was immature and had a severe lack of ambition. Ted was shattered over the breakup. He had developed an overwhelming fear of rejection and their breakup only added to it, especially after he had just been rejected from law school. He decided to stop taking classes and travel back to his birthplace in Burlington, Vermont. He was so shaken up by the breakup that he felt the need to return to his roots and find some peace. But there wouldn't be any peace to find there. He desperately wanted to figure out who his parents were since he never knew them, or so he thought. While he was there, he learned that he had been living a lie this whole time. According to Ann Rule, Ted visited the local records clerk and finally uncovered the truth about his mother. He still thought that his mother was his sister this whole time, but the records revealed the truth. After he understood that Eleanor was his mother, and his father's identity was a complete mystery, Ted went through a dramatic change. He felt a complete sense of abandonment by both his ex-girlfriend and his mother, and this changed his view of women forever. And he decided that they could no longer be trusted. The part of him that he called the entity took over more control during these few months and he became more focused and determined in his schoolwork and job. Plus, his ex had thought he was immature and lacked ambition, so he would do anything to prove her wrong. In 1968, he got a job managing the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign, and he also attended the Republican convention in Miami, Florida, as a Rockefeller supporter. Not only did he get into politics, but he also re-enrolled at the University of Washington, He began taking classes again and he declared a major in psychology. He went on to become an honors student and he was well liked by his professors. It was the first time in his life that things seemed to be going well. And to top it off, he met Elizabeth Klopfer in 1969. 
She was a divorced secretary who had a daughter from her previous marriage. Ted and Elizabeth fell deeply in love, and their relationship stayed strong while they built a future together. In 1972, Ted graduated from the University of Washington with a degree in psychology. After graduation, he went to work for the state Republican Party. Through his work, he ended up impressing the world of politics, and he formed a close relationship with Governor Daniel J. Evans. Ted became a strong asset for the governor, and during his campaign, he sent Ted out to follow his Democratic opponent around the state. Ted then disguised himself as a student so he could sneak into conventions and tape record the Democrats' speeches. They need to report back to Daniel personally. They went over the talking points in each speech so that Daniel could counter them. The Democratic campaign eventually caught on to Ted disguising himself, but it was too late. He had gotten what he needed. And Daniel went on to win the election that year, and he served as governor until 1977. After this, Ted saw that he might have a future in politics and law, so he enrolled in the law school at the University of Utah in 1973 but he soon realized that he wasn't cut out for law school. And after only two semesters, he dropped out in the spring of 1974. But before he dropped out, he wanted to make sure he did one thing while he was still in law school. Ted wanted revenge. He wanted to show his ex-girlfriend just how much he had changed since they first dated back in 1967. In the back of his mind, he had built up a revenge plot against his ex. So while on a business trip to California in the summer of 1973, he decided to look up his ex-girlfriend, Diane Edwards, also known as Stephanie Brooks. And he was able to arrange a meeting between the two. And when they met up, Diane was immediately impressed with Ted. Ted had a whole new look and a fresh attitude towards life. He was driven and successful, not to mention he was in law school. So the two began dating again. Meanwhile, Ted was still in a relationship with Elizabeth back in Washington but neither woman knew that the other existed, and Ted kept this up for several months. He eventually asked Diane to marry him, and she accepted, but it was only a part of his plan. He had no intention of actually marrying her. He only wanted to get back at her for rejecting him all those years ago, so he let her on for months. And soon after New Year's 1974, he ghosted her. He stopped returning her phone calls and never wrote her back. He rejected her just like she did to him all those years ago. And he loved this. After his first taste of revenge, Ted Bundy grew hungry for more. But now breaking someone's heart wasn't good enough. And still, the images of dead women flashed in his mind. Ted knew he wanted blood. And the entity that grew inside him all these years was finally about to be set loose. Things get much, much darker for Ted from here on out. And we'll get more into that right after our first break. All right, let's go ahead and jump back into the life of Ted Bundy. So no one knows exactly when or where Ted Bundy began killing his victims. And it's truly unknown how many victims he had. But from the known and recorded stories, many believe his killing spree took off in the early 1970s. Some believe Ted might have started killing women as early as his teen years. An eight-year-old girl from Tacoma named Anne Marie Burr vanished from her home in 1961 when Ted was 14 years old. He later denied having anything to do with it, but Ted was a narcissist and a compulsive liar. He said that his first attempt to kidnap a woman was in 1969, 
and the first time that he committed murder was in 1972, but again, no one knows for sure. Some colleagues had seen signs that something was off. As early as 1973, one of Ted's Republican Party friends saw that he kept a pair of handcuffs in the back of his Volkswagen. Even though it's unknown when he truly began killing, Ted let sexual rage and violence consume him from early on, and after tricking Diane into getting engaged with him, he knew he could successfully manipulate people. He knew how to come off as intelligent and charismatic, and he knew how to disarm people, and most that met him couldn't tell that a demon hid behind his nice smile and his smart conversations. He used these to trick women. And by 1974, he began his long killing spree of young women when he was 27 years old. On January 4th, 1974, Ted had recently broken up with Diane. And the only way he could increase that feeling of revenge, he realized, was to kill. And shortly after midnight, he sneaked into the basement where an 18-year-old dancer and University of Washington student named Joni Lenz lived. As he got into her bedroom, he took a metal rod from her bed frame and stood over her. And before she woke up, he bludgeoned her to death with the metal rod as she slept. He then took a speculum, which is a metal tool for investigating body orifices, and he sexually assaulted her with it. Joni was later found by her roommates the next day. When they found her, she was laying in a pool of her own blood, and she had fallen into a coma for ten days. She survived the attack, but suffered severe permanent brain damage. Some thought this was a drastic escalation in Ted that came out of nowhere, but supposedly he had a history as a predator. He often crept around campus, peeking through women's windows and watching them get undressed. He became a voyeur over the years, and mixed with his obsession with revenge and sexual violence, murder was the only next step for Ted Bundy. After going this far, he would never turn back. After getting a taste of sexual violence against women, he planned on doing it for as long as he could get away with it. He only waited a month before attacking again. This time, he would make sure that his victim died, but not before having his way with her. On February 1st, 1974, Ted snuck into another college student's room. She was 21-year-old, Linda Ann Healy, and she was his cousin's roommate. In the early morning hours, he snuck into the bedroom and bashed in her skull, knocking her unconscious. He dressed her in jeans and a t-shirt, wrapped her in a bedsheet, and then he carried her out of the building. All that was left behind was a few bloody bedsheets. Once he took her out of town, he then killed her and dumped her body in the deep woods of the Taylor Mountain Forest, which was about a 30-minute drive from the university's campus. Her body wasn't discovered until a year later in 1975 and this became the first in Ted Bundy's long list of murders. From law student to rapist to killer, Ted Bundy and the entity were on a path where there was no turning back. Coeds around Washington began disappearing at a rate of one per month in 1974 and sometimes more, and on March 12th he attacked his next victim. Donna Manson, a 19-year-old from Evergreen State College, disappeared and was never seen again. Ted began trying out his new strategy of luring women over to his VW Beetle and saying that he needed their help. He would often dress himself in an arm sling or crutches to make himself look injured. So strangers who only wanted to do a good deed would come over to help him. On April 17, 1974, another student named Susan Rancourt disappeared from Central Washington State College. 
and not much later, two other students from the same school mentioned seeing a man in an arm sling who kept asking people to help carry a load of books to his car. This is how he got people near the trunk of his beetle, and once they were close enough, he would shove them inside and lock the door. After he drove out to a remote place in the woods, he would bludgeon his victims and strangle them to death. He did this with several more victims in the Pacific Northwest. Most of them were college students, and they were always lured to his VW Beetle before disappearing. His victims were either walking across campus, walking out of a local bar, or just walking around the dormitories. Witnesses at the University of Washington reported that they had seen a man in a full leg cast asking people for help with carrying his briefcase to his car. It didn't take long for fear to spread across the Pacific Northwest as more and more college women disappeared. As word spread of a co-ed serial killer, many women began looking over their shoulders as they walked through campus. So Ted needed a new hunting ground. Ted was drawn to the power and control he had over these women. Even their sense of fear excited him. And since he became addicted to killing, he was quickly prone to boredom, so he needed to keep his sexual violence up at all costs. Even if that meant he left more witnesses behind, In the summer of 1974, his strategy changed. He needed something fresh to keep his excitement up, so he decided to attack in broad daylight. On July 14, 1974, he headed into Lake Sammamish State Park, 15 miles southeast of the University of Washington. This was a popular place for college students to hang out while away from class and homework. After driving into the parking lot, he wandered around the park, trying to get the women back to his car. He was eventually able to get two women back to his car throughout the day, 23-year-old Janice Ott and 19-year-old Denise Nasland. That day alone, eight people later told police that they had seen a young man with his arm in a sling, and he called himself Ted, and he drove a VW Beetle. Five of the witnesses were women who Ted had asked to help him with unloading a sailboat from his car. One of the witnesses went with Ted, but as they got close to his car, they saw there was no sailboat and their gut told them not to go any further, so they quickly left Ted alone in the parking lot. Three other witnesses saw Ted approach Janice, and he had sold a story about the sailboat. So she left the beach and headed towards his car, and sadly she was never seen again. As for Denise, she disappeared without a trace about four hours later, and she was last seen walking into the public restrooms. Ted had raped them both, and he made one watch as he strangled the other to death. He disposed of their bodies about two miles from the park. These attacks were the first ones where Ted was confident enough to commit in the light of day. He was so confident that he didn't care about leaving a dozen witnesses behind. But the police now had more info about him. But to Ted, that just made the thrill of the murders way more exciting. It was later reported that Ted Bundy spent time with the bodies of his victims After they were dead, he sometimes shampooed their hair and painted their fingernails. Some think this was a display of the two sides of Ted Bundy. The entity or the monster within was the rage and perversion he expressed. But his charm was used to seduce his victims and later wash their hair and paint their fingernails. People also later noticed that many of his victims were similar to his ex-girlfriend Diane. Many had dark hair that they parted down the middle just like her and she was a student when they first met and dated. So it wasn't surprising that his victims were all female students. Some believe he let his rage towards Diane build so much 
that each murder was Ted imagining raping and killing her over and over again. But after the gruesome murders of the two women at the park, Ted realized he had left too many witnesses behind. The police now had his name, description, and a car make and model. Soon, police sketch flyers popped up all over Seattle, and his description had made the local news and TV reports. The bones of several victims were also found a few miles from the park, and everyone in the Pacific Northwest closely watched the horror story develop. After everyone had seen the news, Ted's girlfriend Elizabeth, one of his psychology professors at the university, and his former co-worker, Anne Rule, all called into the local police and reported Ted as a potential suspect. The problem was, the police got nearly 200 tips a day, and they didn't think that a clean-cut law student who had an interest in local politics was a reasonable suspect for these crimes. Still, Ted decided to dodge the attention by leaving the Washington State area. He then moved out to Salt Lake City at 27 years old, and he got accepted into law school again. This time, he attended the University of Utah. On the surface, he looked like a normal student with a nice smile. But he was a chameleon who could blend into his surroundings. And all the while, he kept on killing. His first known murder in Utah was on October 2nd, 1974. The victim, Nancy Wilcox, was only 16 years old. And she was last seen in a VW Beetle. And her body was never found. Up until that point, she was the youngest victim yet. And from then on, Ted saw how easy it was to trick and overpower younger girls. That same month, he kidnapped the Midvale police chief's daughter, Melissa Smith. He then raped, sodomized, and strangled her, and her body was discovered nine days later. As his body count kept growing, it looked like there was no end in sight, but luckily some of his encounters were unsuccessful, and some of his victims were able to get away before it was too late. In Murray, Utah, Ted disguised himself as a police officer with the name Rosalind. He drove by the Fashion Place Mall, looking for victims, and that's where he spotted Carol DeRanche, and he put his new plan into action. He rolled up next to her and told her that someone had tried to break into her car in the parking lot, and he needed her to come with him and head down to the station so she could file a police report. Carol got in but refused to buckle her seatbelt. She felt something was off about Officer Rosalind, but she had no real reason to suspect that this man was lying. Ted drove her onto the highway and headed towards the station. But when they got to a bare spot in the road, Ted pulled the car over to the shoulder. Carol saw a shiny object in Ted's hands as he pulled out a pair of handcuffs. He tried to cuff her, but she fought back. During the struggle, he accidentally cuffed both handcuff loops to the same arm, so she still had her arms free. He then reached into the back and grabbed a metal crowbar, and when he tried to strike it over her head, she caught the crowbar with her hands. And if she didn't, he would have easily cracked her skull open and her fate would have been the same as the other women. Luckily, Carol was able to pull the latch on the passenger door and escape the car. She ran across the highway and stumbled through traffic and onto the median. She became one of the only women to escape the clutches of Ted Bundy. Ted then took off as fast as he could and never looked back. As he sped down the highway, he was pissed he let a potential victim go, but he knew he could easily find another one if he wanted to. It was still early enough in the day to try again. And so he did. An hour later, a strange man that many suspect was Ted Bundy showed up to Viewmont High School in Bountiful, Utah. 
The drama club was in the middle of putting on a play when this strange man approached the drama teacher and then a student, trying to get either of them to come out and identify a car in the parking lot. Both of them declined, and they both had a feeling something was off about this strange man. Towards the end of the play production, the drama teacher saw him again. She said he was breathing hard and his shirt was untucked, like he had just got into a scuffle with someone. Another student said that they saw the same man lurking in the back of the auditorium all night, and nobody knew who the hell he was. And it was later discovered that Debbie Kent, a 17-year-old high school student, had left the play at intermission to go pick up her brother, and she was never seen again. All that was left behind was a small key found in the parking lot outside of the high school. Later, investigators took that same key back to the station and wondered if it could be connected to anything else. Carol, the woman that Ted had tried to kidnap earlier in the day, had handcuffs on when she showed up to the station later in the day. They were able to get them off and put them in an evidence locker. Sure enough, the key they found in the parking lot was able to unlock the handcuffs that were on Carol. Again, Ted was getting sloppy and leaving too many clues and witnesses behind. So while he attended law school at the University of Utah, he shifted his murder spree to Colorado. When Ted wasn't hunting for his next victim... Ted kept up an on-and-off long-distance relationship with Elizabeth back in Seattle, Washington. And in the fall of 1974, he also began seeing a woman named Carol, a single mother. He dated them both at the same time, and neither woman knew about the other. This was just another way that Ted could manipulate women without physically assaulting them. And he convinced himself that he could get away with it for as long as he wanted to. All the while, he raped and killed three young women in Colorado. Each of them were either walking or biking through town, and Ted put on his usual show of needing someone to help him before shoving them into his beetle and hauling them away. In May, he headed out to Idaho and abducted a 13-year-old named Lynette Culver from her middle school grounds. After returning to Utah, a 15-year-old named Susan Curtis disappeared. She was walking alone to the dorms during a youth conference at BYU, and her body was never found. Ted's victims kept getting younger, and his kidnappings kept getting sloppier. Not only was his police sketch all across the news, but more people also suspected there was a serial killer moving through the country, and he wasn't afraid of abducting his victims in the middle of the day. Back in Washington, investigators scrambled through their long list of suspects. They used computers to cross-check these suspects. They looked for classmates of victims and owners of VW Beatles. Anyone who turned up more than once became a person of interest. Ted Bunny was one of the 25 people who came up on four separate lists, and he was the next in line to be investigated when a call came in from Utah police. They had just made a crucial arrest. Ted Bundy was finally arrested on August 16, 1975 in Salt Lake City. He failed to stop for a police officer and was acting suspicious, so the officer got a warrant to search his car. Inside, he found a slew of strange items, a ski mask, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, an ice pick, and other items that looked like tools used to break and enter properties. All these items looked pretty suspicious, but Ted kept calm the whole time. When they began questioning him, he explained that he needed the mask for skiing, and he said that he found the handcuffs in a dumpster. One of the detectives noticed Ted was driving a Volkswagen Beetle. This was the same car that had been reported by Carol, the woman who was almost captured by Ted, so the detective got a search warrant for his apartment too. And when they rifled through his stuff, they uncovered a brochure of Colorado ski resorts. Next to one of the resort names, the Wildwood Inn had a bright red check mark next to it. 
This was the same place where one of his victims had disappeared. They also found a meat cleaver and a bag of women's clothes in his apartment, but it wasn't enough to suspect him of murder, so he was eventually let go. With the FBI now on his trail, he decided to sell his car before they could get their hands on it, but they still were able to find it through the new owner. Inside, they found strands of hair that belonged to three women. So they caught him in Utah and brought him in for a lineup. In the car, they found the strands of hair of Carol Durant, the woman who had escaped from his car. So she came in to pick him out of the lineup, and she quickly identified him as Officer Roseland, the man that tried to capture her. Other witnesses identified him as that strange man who was lurking around the back of the auditorium on the night of the play when Debbie Kent disappeared. He was quickly charged with kidnapping soon after. When his girlfriend Elizabeth heard the news, she immediately broke up with him. Ted's trial only lasted a week, and Ted was convicted of kidnapping Carol on March 1st, 1976. He was sentenced to up to 15 years in Utah prison. As for the Colorado investigation, the police there were pursuing more murder charges, and Ted was extradited there to stand trial for his crimes. It seemed like this nightmare was finally coming to a close. They finally had their monster in custody, and Ted most likely was going to prison for the rest of his life, or possibly even facing death. But Ted had other plans. Before we dive into Ted's plans, take our last break, and we'll be right back. So on June 7th, 1977, Ted was back in Colorado preparing for a hearing in one of his murder trials. This took place in the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen. And after a few hours of the hearing, the judge called for a court recess. Since Ted decided to represent himself in the trial, of course, he was allowed to head over to the courthouse's law library. And this is where he could research the law so he could be prepared for his trial. While wandering around the bookshelves, he noticed an open window in the library. Even though he was on the second story, he decided, you know what, I'm going to take this risk. And right as the courthouse officers turned their heads away for a split second, Ted hurled himself out of the second story window. After landing on the ground outside, he sprained his right ankle, but he ran through the pain. He sprinted as fast as he could across town, and once he realized he was out of eyesight from the police, he casually strolled through the small town toward Aspen Mountain. Police set up roadblocks around town, but their efforts weren't enough. As Ted got closer to the mountain, the deep forest looked like a great place to lay low for a while. He climbed all the way to the top of Aspen Mountain without being picked up by police. He discovered an abandoned hunting cabin where he rested for several days. And after lying low, he planned on heading to the nearby town of Crested Butte. The problem was he didn't know how to get off the mountain. He wandered around the trails for several days, but he kept missing two trailheads that led down the mountain. While he was lost, he ran into a man armed with a rifle. This was one of the volunteer searchers who scoured the mountainside to help the police look for Ted Bundy. But with his charm, Ted was able to talk his way out of it. He tricked the man into thinking Ted was just another hiker wandering the beautiful countryside. On June 13, 1977, Ted stole a car he found on a nearby road. He drove back into Aspen and was about to head out of town. He was close to getting away again. But two officers noticed the car he was driving had dimmed headlights at night and he was weaving in and out of his lane like he was drunk or distracted. After pulling him over, they immediately recognized him as Ted Bundy, and they took him into custody. He had been on the run for almost a week, and now he was back in jail. But he now realized how easy it was to escape custody. So as they held him in the Glenwood Springs, Colorado jail, he got his hands on a hacksaw blade from another prison inmate. 
Over the next two weeks, he spent his spare time sawing through the welds that were fixed to a small plate in the ceiling of his jail cell. He also ate very little so that he could slim down and fit through the hole. After he finally cut his way through the metal plate, he was now able to pull himself into the crawl space above. An informant in the jail told the guards that they heard Ted moving around in the ceiling a few nights before his escape, but it was never looked into. After his trial date was set on January 9, 1978, they also changed the venue to Colorado Springs. So Ted realized he had to make his escape before being transferred out of his current jail cell. So on the cold night of December 30, 1977, Ted bundled up in layers of clothing before his escape. He also stuffed a bunch of books and files under his blanket to make it look like he was sleeping in his jail cell. Then he wriggled his way up through the small hole he had cut in the ceiling and wiggled into the crawl space. From there, he crawled to a spot directly over the jailer's linen closet. The jailer and his wife were out for the evening, so Ted dropped down into his apartment and walked out the front door. Ted was free once again, but it was a cold, snowy night in Colorado. Traveling through the frost was going to be tough with his lack of clothes and proper gear, so he hotwired a broken-down car on the side of the road, but it stalled out when he got into the mountains. He was stuck on the side of Interstate 70 in the middle of a blizzard. Lucky for him, another driver pulled over and offered him a ride into Vail, Colorado. Once he got into town, he hopped on a bus to Denver. And at 8.55 a.m., Ted boarded a flight to Chicago. Meanwhile, the jail guards didn't notice Ted was gone until noon the next day. By then, he had already been gone for 17 hours, and he was already in Chicago. Once he got to Chicago, his journey wasn't over there. He caught an Amtrak train to Ann Arbor, Michigan. He found a room at the local YMCA and stayed there for the night. He assumed there was a manhunt looking for him. But the next day, he casually walked over to a local bar and watched his old college football team. The University of Washington Huskies beat the Michigan Wolverines in the Rose Bowl. He then stole another car and drove it all the way to Atlanta, Georgia, where he left it on the side of a road. Again, he hopped on a bus and traveled all the way to Tallahassee, Florida, where he arrived on January 8, 1978. There he used the alias Chris Hagen to rent a room at a boarding house. And since he was running out of cash, he ended up shoplifting, purse snatching, and stealing cars to get around. He even stole someone's student ID card and a copy of their social security card and birth certificate. To disguise himself, he grew a mustache and drew a fake mole on his right cheek, hoping that no one would recognize him. After committing enough theft to last him a few days, he ended up trying to get a job in Florida. He set up a meeting with a personnel officer at a construction site. But when the officer asked for his driver's license, Ted walked away. And from then on, he never tried to get another job. Even though it might have seemed like Ted was trying to get back to a quiet life while evading police, he was actually on the verge of exploding the whole time. It had been two and a half years since he had last murdered anyone, and he couldn't suppress his violent urges any longer. During an insane spree, Ted trudged over to the Chi Omega sorority house on Florida State University's campus. It was three in the morning on January 15, 1978. It was a cold Super Bowl Sunday, and the sorority house was dead silent. Ted crept into the house and wandered through the bedroom hallways. After entering each room, he found the college women sleeping in their beds. He then bludgeoned the young women as they slept one by one. Margaret Bowman died from her wounds. Lisa Levy also died, but Ted made sure to rape her before dealing the final blow. He then silently tore through the house and bludgeoned two more sorority girls. Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. Both of those women survived. The whole spree lasted about a half hour, and he left the sorority bedrooms covered in blood. 
After leaving the house, Ted broke into another house a few blocks away. Cheryl Thomas, another student, slept in her bed, and he clubbed her several times over the head. He left her severely injured but still alive, and after two and a half years of repressed sexual violence, Ted attacked five victims in one day. Although this satisfied him for a while, the urges never stopped. On February 9, 1978, Ted made his way over to Lake City, Florida, looking for his next victim. And there, he ended up abducting, raping, and killing a 12-year-old named Kimberly Leach. He threw her dead body in the mud of a small pig shed when he was through. A few days later, he spotted another Volkswagen Beetle, just like the one he used to own. He hotwired the engine and left Tallahassee behind for good. He headed west along Florida's panhandle, and after a few days of traveling... On February 15, 1978, Ted was stopped by the Pensacola police. The officer had called in a check of the license plate, and the vehicle came up as stolen. When he got out of the car, he resisted arrest and lunged at the officer. And after a short scuffle, Ted was finally overpowered and arrested. And on the drive to the jailhouse, Ted admitted to the officer that he had started the fight with him, hoping that the police officer would kill him. Instead of going back to jail, Ted Bundy wanted to commit suicide by police, but he didn't get his wish. When the police officer booked Ted at the station, Ted gave him the name Ken Meisner. This was the idea of the man he had stolen ID documents from back in Tallahassee, but by the next morning they had made a positive fingerprint identification. They finally had Ted Bundy back in custody. With no delay, they transported him to Tallahassee and charged him with the Tallahassee and Lake City murders in Florida. Later, he was taken to Miami to stand trial for the sorority murders, and this time he wouldn't escape. In June of 1979, Bundy went to trial for the sorority murders. He had five court-appointed lawyers, but he still wanted to represent himself as his own attorney. His narcissism got the best of him. Even though he was a failed law student, Ted thought he could successfully represent himself. But the evidence against him was too solid and the sloppy spree of his sorority murders would end up being his downfall. Nita Neary had returned to the sorority house early in the morning around 3.30 a.m., and she saw Ted as he was leaving the building, and she identified him in court. The second piece of evidence was a forensic detail that would be the last nail in Ted Bundy's coffin. During his killing frenzy, Ted had bit Lisa Levy's left butt cheek. It left deep impressions on her skin. And for the forensic specialist, it was easy to match his teeth to the wound. After taking a plaster mold of his teeth, it was obvious to the jury that Ted committed these heinous crimes. And they quickly found him guilty and sentenced him to death by the electric chair. The judge told him that he had never seen such a total waste of humanity in all of his life. Now that Ted was already sentenced to death, in 1980, he was also tried for the murder of Kimberly Leach. The biggest pieces of evidence in this case were the fibers found in his van that matched the victim's clothing. There was also several eyewitnesses brought forward to testify against him. Ted was convicted on all accounts and he was again sentenced to death. During this trial, Ted Bundy still found love and he married his former co-worker Carol Ann Boone. She was one of many women who fell in love with Ted when he was on trial. Ted Bundy had gathered a fan base of women who all thought he was innocent. After several conjugal visits with his new wife, Carol gave birth to a daughter in October of 1982. A few years later, she moved back to Washington and never returned to Florida. No one knows where she went or what happened to Ted Bundy's daughter. As he spent his time in prison waiting for his execution date, 
Ted Bundy gave several interviews and confessions over the next few years. One of the interviews was with FBI profiler Robert K. Ressler. Robert quickly realized that Ted was uncooperative and manipulative during every interview. He only spoke in third person and refused to address his crimes. Robert later wrote that Ted Bundy was an animal, and it shocked him that the media didn't understand that about him. Even after his convictions, the media loved Ted Bundy's charm, and Ted loved the attention. And Robert didn't have much luck breaking through during any of his interviews. It wasn't until he was visited by special agent William Hagmeyer when he really opened up. They got along so well that Ted eventually called him his best friend. And it was during these interviews when Ted gave specific details of many of the murders he committed. As his execution date approached, he ended up confessing to eight more murders that were unsolved in Washington State. And he confessed to his crimes in gruesome detail. And he even told authorities that there were five bodies left on Taylor Mountain. Meanwhile, his execution dates kept getting set back. And he tried to use these confessions to get another stay of execution or possibly get a commuted sentence to life in prison. A legal advocate that worked for Ted even asked some of the families of the victims to send letters to the Florida governor and ask for mercy for Ted. He explained that they needed more time to find the remains of their loved ones, but in the end, as you can imagine, all the families refused. Ted then desperately tried to use his confessions as leverage, and he always promised to reveal more information if he was given more time, but he couldn't manipulate his sentence any longer. His execution date stayed on schedule. And on the night before his execution, he gave one last television interview to James Dobson. James was the head of the evangelical Christian organization called Focus on the Family. And it was during this interview that Ted claimed that his early consumption of violent pornography helped shape and mold his violent behavior. And he blamed the sexual violence in the media. And he also said that this would send other boys down the road to becoming Ted Bundy's. I'm going to go ahead and play a few clips just so you can hear this monster sounded like i didn't show any emotion because you know what am i supposed to do am i going to jump up on the table am i going to scream that's what i felt like doing i heard my mother crying uh <laughs> it's an emotional time i don't even like to think of that day but i wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of seeing me break down do you ever think when you're in that cell mm-hmm. about the possibility that you could one day face a firing squad they don't have firing squads in Colorado, and I don't think that in any event uh, that I, I ever think, I don't think about it, honestly. In the few days before his execution, Ted also confessed to his special agent friend, William Hagmeyer, that he thought about killing himself several times. But in the end, he decided not to. On January 24, 1989, Ted Bundy was finally led to the electric chair in Florida State Prison. They strapped him into the chair and sent 2,000 volts into his body for less than two minutes and Ted Bundy was pronounced dead at 7.16 a.m. Hundreds of people gathered outside the prison and cheered when they finally saw the signal that Ted had been declared dead. They sold t-shirts and hats outside to celebrate his death. People even cooked hamburgers and painted signs on their cars with the words, Fry Bundy, Fry. One of America's most notorious serial killers was now dead. After his execution, scientists surgically removed Ted's brain as they hoped to better understand the inner workings of a serial killer's mind. In the decades since his death, Ted Bundy has left his permanent mark on serial killer history. His charm, manipulation, and fucked-up sadistic tendencies have given him a place in the Hall of Horrors. His resentment that he had built up against his first girlfriend was a seed that grew into a downward spiral of sexual violence and perverted madness. 
He spread fear across state lines while he bludgeoned, raped, and strangled somewhere around 36 women, possibly more. He claimed that these victims radiated vulnerability. He could see in their facial expressions that they feared him. And he convinced himself that these expressions were an invitation to kill them. He had also convinced himself that the loss of one person's life was a small price to pay for his violent sexual satisfaction. In his own words, he once admitted, I'm the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet, and that might be an understatement. I think Ted Bundy got exactly what he deserved, and it just is so horrible that it took so long for police to connect the dots. This was a time before technology and databases, and I feel like it would be very difficult for a serial killer of this caliber to exist today, not to mention all the escapes from jail. I mean, that just really doesn't happen today. I think what makes Ted Bundy so terrifying is just the fact that he was this charismatic, charming guy that by looking at him, by meeting him, you would never know that he really was this demon in human form and that this person could inflict so much pain and suffering on so many people. That's what's most terrifying to me is that sometimes the devil is walking among us and you don't even know. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there and leave you with the names and pictures of all of Ted Bundy's victims. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't about Ted Bundy. It's about the victims and all these young women that lost their lives at such early ages and never had the opportunity to live out their life like everybody else did. So I'm going to leave you with that, and I'll see you next time.